The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Um, my name is Professor Des O'Neill. Uh, delighted to welcome you. Indeed, good afternoon in Dublin, Ireland, but we now have an international reach. So good morning, good afternoon or good evening or even good night, wherever you may be. Uh, together with, uh, I'm a geriatrician, Professor of Medical Gerontology, and together with Professor Mary Cosgrove, who is a professor of German in Trinity. We co-chair medical and health humanities in the Trinity Long Room Hub, um, which is a focal point for bringing together arts and humanities scholarship and research in Trinity College Dublin, a very fine building adjacent to Front Square. And we're very ably supported by Shelby Zimmerman, who is our coordinator for our series. This is the longest running series of seminars in medical and health humanities in any higher education institute in the Republic of Ireland. And uh, we're delighted that the silver lining of the um, COVID cloud has been that by going online, we've uh, got a greater reach both in terms of speakers and in terms of also those who can participate as well. Uh, the format is very much one around the delivery of the seminar and then uh, questions and answers or comments through the Q&A uh, function and then we'll have some uh, discussion afterwards. Um, we're really pleased today to be welcoming uh, Dr. Dan O'Brien, um, visiting research fellow at the Centre for Death and Society, University of Bath. His research focuses on the undertaking trade and their products in 18th century England. And this has included a detailed analysis of early trade in the West of England with a specific focus on the prosperous settlements of Bath, Bristol and Salisbury. And he also seeks in his research to understand how undertaker and their goods were perceived by society by analysing how death and dying were presented in the popular culture of the period. And this is a really, really important area. We're delighted to have uh, this perspective and view. And indeed, the relationship between those involved with undertaking and the medical profession, certainly a rich area of inquiry. So really delighted to welcome Dan and looking forward to his seminar. Well, hello, everyone, and, and thanks for the introduction, Des. Um, yeah, it's, this is essentially a, a condensing of some of my recent research. And, and, you know, and as the introduction states, I'm quite interested not only in the practicalities of the undertaking trade, um, which are fairly fascinating anyway, but also in the really interesting way that people began to perceive and understand undertakers, the way that they place them in a particular place in their mind, the way that they understood what they did, what they might do. Um, and so today we're going to be taking a leap into that imagined world. Now, if you've heard any of my talks before, you'll know that I'm quite a big fan of the way that the undertaking trade are explored in popular culture. But what I want to introduce here is something which has interested me quite a lot recently, which is the relationship between the medical practitioners in their various different forms and the undertakers. And so with very little further ado, I will plunge us into my PowerPoint. 
Okay, now hopefully everyone can see my two signature mutes there. And yeah, today's talk, when the pulse won't yield a fee, the perceived relationship between undertakers and medical practitioners in 18th century England. And so we start with a very unusual scene. In 1813, the London print shop of Thomas Tegg published a caricature by Rawlinson that depicted a most dismal scene. The image was dominated by a small shambling bed upon which there lay a man, dressed in a long shift and a brilliant red nightcap. The man sleeps, and yet we know he will not wake. Indeed, he's surrounded by clothes that betray his mortal state. Beneath the dying man's bed, there's a pestle and a mortar, accompanied by a pair of scattered vials that you can see lying on the floor there. These are perhaps evidence of the numerous failed attempts to salvage his life. Now at the window at the back there, we can see a familiar, rather macabre presence. It's death in the form of a skeleton, bearing an hourglass in one hand and a fatal arrow in the other. Now lying in silence, the dying man is caught between two more familiar figures. At his head is the doctor, and at his feet, an undertaker enters the room. Now these depictions are of long standing by the time that they're published in the early 1800s. We have the portly, well-dressed doctor. He's wearing a wig and we can see under his arm he's got a cane as well. The undertaker, a contrastingly slim figure, is dressed entirely in black. In his hat there's a banded, sorry, in his hand you can see a banded tricorn hat and he has a coffin strapped to his back. He's also holding in his hand one of those funerary staves, a bit like the mutes behind me at the moment. So we might wonder, how did we reach this scene? And what's the relationship between these two figures at either end of the man? During a century of depictions, we can observe how contemporaries imagined the different opportunities for competition and collaboration between medicine and the funeral trade. Now, once again, it's important to clarify that this paper today concerns fictional works rather than accounts of real deathbeds and real people in the 18th century. But it does examine texts that were intended to appeal to contemporaries with situations and characters that they would easily recognise. I still often like to encourage people when I'm talking about fictional undertakers and their nefarious deeds, we have to remember that for a lot of these jokes to really hit, for the, for the punchline to work, the people have to understand and recognise what they're seeing quite quickly. They don't need lots of introduction, they don't need lots of explanation. An audience may be looking at a nefarious undertaker, is going to anticipate that he's going to behave in certain ways, or maybe he has certain motives. Also really interesting, I should add, it does kind of betray the idea that these people are going to know who undertakers are. Now that's a that's a sort of a tangential idea, but it's rather fascinating in itself. And for this reason, it's perhaps useful to introduce where the undertaking trade is in the 18th century. Now, we might be quite familiar with the Victorian status of the undertaking trade, certainly with the, the grand Victorian funerals, the great expenditures. Um, but I think it's worthwhile to briefly outline the state of the undertaking trade in the 18th century. Now, I have a particular fondness for the 18th century undertaking trade, and 
I would say possibly biased, that it's a very important period for the development of what we might now consider to be an essential, or at the very least, a commonplace business. Existing literature situates the origin of the undertaking trade in the final three decades of the 17th century, and identifies a handful of individuals who supplemented their existing trades with the supply and organisation of funerals. Many of those who took this step had pre-existing experience in producing goods for funerals. Maybe they were already producing coffins or mourning fabrics or heraldic items for the grand funerals. Now, the entrepreneurial basis of these early businesses meant that they were mostly located in London, where the number of middling customers offered them the most security. They needed people to be able to buy their goods to make um, those large expenditures on funerals. And as the century passes, the undertaking businesses start to emerge in provincial towns, a bit like my on cities of, of Bristol and Bath. And here they follow a similar model. You know, we see carpenters, upholsterers, drapers, painters, even metal workers branching out into the funerary business. Now, the really interesting thing about the early funeral trade is that it has many what we might call unofficial members. Um, there are people who undertake funerals without very much expertise in funerals, but an ability to hire in the goods that are required. Maybe they know the right people. They're capable of summoning particular items from a warehouse um, to supplement the items that they produce. And what's really interesting as well is that these individuals are taking the title of undertaker. Now, the title of undertaker refers to the act of undertaking the funeral, rather than some exciting euphemism for burying the dead. And in the period that we're going to be looking at today, undertakers were an increasingly familiar presence, particularly in London and other urban settlements. But notably, they lack uniformity and regulation. Anyone can be an undertaker. Anyone can use that title. And that means that obviously, from a customer's perspective, there are lots of questions about the veracity of some undertakers' claims of comprehensive service and impressive stock, and also experience as well. So it's perhaps unsurprising that some contemporaries imagined medicine and the funeral trade as rivals, with the patient caught between them. Now in this interpretation, the undertaker represents death, waiting to drag the man away to his grave, and the doctor, contrastingly, embodies life, fighting to save the patient from the end. Whilst the sleeping physician of Rollinson's giving up the ghost may not seem like an effective defence against death, there are other, more compelling examples. In 1777, William Humphrey imagined the doctor as a last line of defence against the skeleton representing death. The skeleton clasps a bony fistful of arrows labelled with different ailments. Against this barrage, the doctor holds a similar handful, but this time of remedies, opiates, tincture, balsamic. Some are already flying toward the skeleton, including labels inscribed for the dropsy and for the gout. Now, this rather amusing image of the doctor using medicine as weapons against death was even more vividly represented in a pair of images produced later by Samuel Collins and Thomas Rollinson, respectively. Both men craft a scene in which the doctor fends off death with a blast from a large metal syringe. 
So we take a look here, for example, at Samuel Collings's The Doctor Too Much for Death. This was the first and depicts a rather fierce looking skeleton leaning in through a window only to meet a confident assault from the smiling doctor. Here we have a sense from the, the look of anguish on the patient's face that he's quite fearful. He's, you know, fearing for his own life as the skeleton enters the room. And yet the doctor seems almost playful, confident that he can repel death and doing so with one of the instruments of his work. And what's really interesting about this scene as well is that it, it's part of a, a pair. So we have Samuel Collins's The Doctor Too Much for Death. And then contrastingly, we also have Death Too Much for the Doctor, in which we see a slightly less confident Doctor being overwhelmed by a group of skeletons. So there's a slightly macabre twist here. But if we view this image, we can see at least a rather positive interpretation of the Doctor's application of his medical knowledge. A more colourful uh, example is Rollinson's The Doctor Dismisses Death. This follows the, the tone of Collins' image and presents a very similar scene in which a blast from a metal syringe repels an incursion by death. Here we see also the patient lifts up his spoon from his bowl, suggesting that he will live further, that the medicine and the support that he's been given is adequate and certainly enough to repel death's assault. Now, both images convey an amusing scenario in which the doctor is quite clearly and quite actively the defender of the patient and is using medicine for good. These depictions of the heroic doctor are significant because they represent a favourable interpretation of the practitioners of medicine as the defenders of patients, eager to protect and working to prolong life. The doctor may confront the skeleton in these images, but in contemporaneous works, we have shown how the Doctor's efforts are watched and counted by the Undertaker. And this is particularly interesting because here if we think of the Doctor as being a defender, defending against the skeleton, we're then invited to consider that maybe in addition to the skeleton, there's another individual in the premises or near the premises who may also have schemes, in this case, the Undertaker. Now, in the late 1780s, in a play called Better Late Than Never, which is one of my, my favourite sort of plays that features Undertakers, um, it's said by one of the characters, uh, one of the main characters, that the Undertakers have as watchful an eye over the faculty movements as the faculty have over their patient circumstances. <laughs> this is quite interesting because in this representation, the Undertaker is the anti-doctor an individual predating on the sick and spying upon the doctor, much as the skeleton of the original caricature watches the patient through the window. The image of the undertaker conducting surveillance on his patient was not particularly new in the 1780s. As early as 1701, the fictional undertaker of Richard Steele's play, The Funeral, was boasting of the detail with which he ascertains and catalogues the condition of his neighbours. The confident Undertaker, Mr. Sable. I should just add at this point that a lot of Undertakers in fictional works have really, really obvious names. Coffin, Sable, um, Strip Corpse. Um, it's, it's part of the territory, really. Um, but here we have the confident Mr. Sable, and he's informing a customer. I have a book at home, which I call my Doomsday Book. 
where I have every man of quality's age and distemper, and I know when you should drop. This rather striking document is furnished with details gained by a network of informants who are paid to watch houses or give information about what's happening inside them. Sable takes pride in his espionage because it would appear that he believes that it demonstrates his professionalism. The fictional undertaker is always candid in his discussion of death, a reminder perhaps that a prolonged exposure to death has changed him or somehow poisoned him maybe robbed him of his sense of alarm and distaste that fellow characters around him feel. Now, at one point, overcome by frustration, the undertaker tells a shocked man that I had all your long fit of sickness last winter at half a crown a day, a fellow waiting at your gate to bring me intelligence. But unfortunately, you recovered and I lost all my obliging pains for your service. So as we can see, he takes a certain displeasure in the recovery of people who he considers possible subjects for trade, but also he has no shame in telling people this. You know, he has no shame in stressing to them that he has paid lots of money to have them watched and somehow they have recovered. Um, but this does maybe reassuringly, at least in this instance, give us a sense that the undertaker may watch the dying but that's as far as his behaviour goes. We'll see a little bit more about that later. Now, the Doomsday Book featured in the funeral was, and it would seem, an intoxicating idea, and it appears sometime later in Ned Ward's The Town Spy. Here, an account of such a text appeared in an entertaining depiction of the larger-than-life characters who populate different wards of the City of London. It's like a, a really interesting, slightly bizarre tour guide to 18th century London, where you can move from different ward to different ward, reading about various slightly exaggerated characters and really getting a sense of some of the, the stereotypes that existed at the time. And describing St Mary in the Savoy, the narrator of this text reflects upon the hidden cost of funerals, and argued that customers would be less angry with their funeral bills if they were aware of the effort that was involved in securing their custom in the first instance. Ward argues that intelligence was essential to the work of the undertaking trade, and he included this within a discussion with a fictional undertaker, who states that he has ere now paid as dear for his information as any foreign minister or general of an army. But who was the undertaker paying? Ward cast the blame on lower paid workers who attend to the physicians and their patients, suggesting that their circumstances challenged their allegiances and made them eager allies for the undertaking trade. He explains that the chairman and the porters who were willing to contribute knowledge on deaths at different households did so purely because they would be paid, regardless of whether the undertaker secured custom. Competitors might already be on their way by the time a death had been announced even if this news was communicated secretly. It's one of the, the tropes of undertaker representations in the 18th century, is that you usually have a large group of individuals who are engaged in heavily competitive behaviour. Um, sometimes this is represented in rather aggressive forms, with undertakers having sort of fisticuffs against each other, racing to people's houses. And there's a real sense that there are lots of people involved in this market, and that they all struggle to sort of climb above each other and it's purely by chance maybe that 
they get the, the trade at a particular household. So to improve their chances of securing custom, the undertakers would depend on knowledge of those who were still clinging to life. And this information required the staff of physicians, such as the coachmen and footmen who transported them around the city. These individuals reported their knowledge on where physicians were going, on what patients they were seeing, on what state those patients were in. The gathered information was compiled in a document that is recognisable as Steele's Doomsday Book, but in Ned Ward's text is titled The Joyful List, a title which emphatically reminds the audience of the profitable nature of death to the undertaking trade. As we'd imagine, a list of people who are sort of very ill, possibly going to die, wouldn't normally be known as a joyful list. But if you're an undertaker in this period, then it's joy. It's the possibility for future custom. Now, for their efforts, the physician's staff are paid depending on a series of grades, which Ward outlines in his account. Death earns the informant the largest single payment, a total of five shillings. It's also noteworthy that this information had the most direct chance of leading to work, but it would also be the extent of economic gain from a particular case. Once someone's dead, there's no more that the, the informants can gain. You know, their work is essentially done. The grades of information earned less money as they went down but were organised in such a way that the informant could gain more money overall if they continually updated the undertaker with information. Now, for example, the first news of an apoplectic fit would gain a mere sixpence, but the second fit would draw one shilling and sixpence, and the third and final fit, which was to lead to the death of the patient, would bring in two shillings and sixpence. The undertaker's payments rewarded knowledge that informed on death, or at least the imminence of death, but they also allowed for the possibility of recovery. The fees for informing on a fever, for example, were less, and in cases of smallpox, a payment is only to be made if three doctors were in attendance, indicating that smallpox had reached a serious stage. Now, by imagining a hierarchy of payments, Ward emphasises that the undertaker's dependence on death is demonstrated by a meticulous contemplation of the different outcomes of illness, and a very clear awareness of the trajectories of illness. The undertakers are in their own way, aware of how people become ill, continue to be ill and potentially die. The doomsday books and joyful lists described by these texts are fictional and no such documents are known to have been used by an undertaker of the 18th century. It's with great uh, disappointment that I can say that I've never found such a text. I would like to It'd be immensely fun. Um, but I suspect these are very much a fictional creation. They ultimately serve as an overt reminder that the undertaker depends on death. The undertaker views the living as items in an inventory, raw materials to be processed. To audiences of these texts, the documents and the surveillance which inform them also nurture a sense of distrust. Whilst we may trust the physician, and he may struggle his best to save us, his staff may owe their allegiance to the undertaker. And who knows what he might do when he's aware that we're at the brink of death. Now, in some physician, fiction, sorry, the undertaker is only too willing to hasten death himself, particularly when he's alone with the dying or the sick. Now, this often occurs in situations where the undertaker finds his way into the premises of a dying person, usually without the permission, I should stress, of the householder. Indeed, 
the homicidal tendencies of undertakers were so established that they are known to individuals outside of the trade. In the play Better Late Than Never, the household servant, Mr Handy, who is, as his name would suggest, a very handy individual to have around, remarks to his employers that undertakers have stopped many a windpipe with a knuckle and grasp that otherwise might have blown the bellows for years longer. Tis a privilege which the undertakers naturally claim. When physical folks have three-fourths done over with their patient's business, they come in for the remaining fraction and conclude the farce with a very profitable epilogue by way of finis. Within the same play, an undertaker with the name Mr Coffin, again very obvious, gives a more favourable appraisal of his murderous activities. He states, when any creature is in pain or troubled with bad conscience, as these nabobs in general are, I think one could do a more could not do a more humane action than to give them a lift, as we call it, by way of the business. The undertaker's use of jargon, describing the mortal act as a lift, disguises the criminal reality of his works, whilst giving his practices a sense of credibility, maybe importance, which they might not have otherwise. The reference to a nabob also prompts the audience to remember that death brings gain to the undertaker. Here he's talking about affluent people, people with lots of money, people whose funerals will be very spectacular and grand. In these scenes, the behaviour of the undertaker is motivated by the highly competitive atmosphere in which he exists. The murderous undertaker dives in near the moment of death to seize the barely living from his numerous rivals. And here, for the most part, the medical practitioner is portrayed as a saviour, a sort of a help to the dying person. Um, for the most part, the undertaker is seen as a threat. And so, in these scenarios, the undertaker was similar, almost identical, to the skeleton of the caricatures we saw earlier, an opponent to the doctor, trying to steal living patients away and sneaking into the rooms of the sick. This adversarial relationship was a little one-sided. The doctor did not seek to repel the undertaker. He was often unaware that the undertaker's subterfuge was going on. Closer interaction between the medical professions and the undertaker was suggested by other satirical works, however. And these imagined a collaborative relationship based around proximity to the dying and financial gain. So Mr. Sable's network of informants included physicians and these physicians notified him of patients who were close to death. Later in the century, Mr Coffin in Better Late Than Never provides the audience with a more detailed account about an affluent man whose impending death was notified to him. I had intelligence the other day of another dying, whom our good friends, the faculty, had turned over to our management by declaring that he had not five hours yet to live. The dialogue is most interesting because... Coffin offers an explanation for the doctor's willingness to surrender his patients to the undertaker. Coffin notes that the doctors resigned their life-saving duties when their guarantee of payment was ended. Without the guarantee of payment, the doctor is more than happy to hand over the patient to the care of an undertaker. 18 patients out of 20, they convey over to us, Mr Coffin states, when the pulse won't yield a fee. It was a clear reminder that for both the doctors and the undertakers, the sick individual was a source of income, 
either through payments for successful treatment or the bill for the funeral. The collaboration between doctors and undertakers, based on knowledge, was the source of comedy and visual satires of the late 18th century. Let's consider Richard Newton's caricature, An Undertaker's Visit. Here the viewer is presented with a scene in which the undertaker ventures to a household where he's been informed that a person is about to die. Announcing himself as he enters, the undertaker mentions his relationship with an unseen doctor. I, sir, he begins, I'm an undertaker, recommended by Dr. Gristle. If you're not engaged, I shall be proud to inter you. The notion that the doctor, the undertaker, sorry, comes with the recommendation of a doctor reinforces the idea of collaboration and arguably offers little reassurance to the startled householder, who it seems has been unknowingly transferred from one profession to another. Of course, because comedy is the order of the day, the undertaker finds a living person, and one who is happy to assert their condition. In termy, he says, the devil you will. I only wish I could catch you at it. Of course, he also has a dog there barking away to defend him against the undertaker. Now, GM Woodward included both an undertaker and a doctor in a caricature depicting conversations between pairs of mismatched characters. Woodward's undertaker encounters the doctor as an equal, thanking him for prior service, but ultimately unable to resist his urge to bury all living things. He says, Sir, I thank you for your custom and humbly solicit future favours. I shall be proud to bury you or any of your family. At this moment, we are reassured that the doctor defined again by Wig and Kane, is not tainted by death as the Undertaker is, and shares our distaste for the Undertaker's forthright behaviour on matters of death. And I, he states, shall be obliged to you, to you, sir, to quit my house. For Woodward then, the Undertaker and Doctor have a mutually beneficial relationship, but do not share a similar view of life. As a consequence, the doctor does not want to admit his contribution to the undertaker's livelihood, and he does not see them as equals. Now, contemporary criticism of the efficacy and safety of medicine created a fertile environment for scenarios in which apothecaries, for example, were seen as allies of undertakers. In this interpretation, they were fueled, they fueled the trade through the provision of medicines which were either willfully or accidentally ineffective. The argument was that the disreputable quack doctor did not care about efficacy or safety as long as he was paid. In such circumstances, the opportunistic undertakers were more than willing to benefit. When the, again, similarly brilliantly named undertakers Crape and Sable discussed their business in Andrew Erskine's town eclogues, their macabre reveling in wealth that the death has brought them is punctuated by a statement about medication and its benefit, particularly the benefit which inefficacy of medicine brings to their trade. Mr. Crape joyfully explains that, thanks to the quacks whose skill is so profound, when sickness comes, new health is seldom found. Here the inefficacy of medication and the limitation of practitioner's skills might provide an opportunity for the undertakers, 
but others saw this as a less spontaneous development. A closer collaboration between the doctor and undertaker was represented early in the long 18th century in Steele's The Funeral, where Mr. Stable boasts that he has relationships with certain medical professionals who advance his trade. In fact, these are fairly important elements of his securing trade and being able to rely on business from his local community. Now, the first of those individuals is a typical quack doctor named Passapore, who is promoting a medicinal powder. It would appear from the dialogue that the powder is either less efficacious than the doctor suggests, or quite possibly it's willfully dangerous. Stable states, Dr. Passapore with the powder has promised me six or seven funerals this week. The powder mentioned by Sable has similarities to numerous powdery patent medicines which were widely advertised in the late 17th and 18th century. In the late 17th century, for example, Dr. Robert Fletcher's powder was advertised as a noble and excellent panacea, which had cured headaches, vertigos, apoplexies, lethargies, epilepsies, convulsions and other distempers which usually afflict the head. Later in the 18th century, Dr. James's powder was widely advertised and consumed by a public desirous of convenient solutions to their numerous different ailments. These products and other similarly promoted pills, drops and syrups were just as readily condemned by competitors and also members of the professions who wished to protect their own business. Contemporary satire did not ignore the benefits of unregulated medicine to the early trade as we can see in a pamphlet of 1724, purporting to be a complaint by the Company of Upholders. That's worth adding at this point that the Upholders were engaged in various different forms of funerary work at the time. The satirical pamphlet condemned a contemporary bill um, and argued that it would affect the work of the Upholders, particularly in funerals. It argued that the Company had a right to bury all the bodies of inhabitants within the country, and the pamphlet claimed that the regulation of medicine would, and I quote, though not absolutely depriving them of their said right, keep them out of possession by unreasonable delays to the great detriment of our company and their numerous families. The pamphlet included an ultimatum that emphasised the importance of dangerous medicines to the operation and prosperity of the funeral trade. It stated, we're afraid by the hardships of this bill that our company will be reduced to leave their business here in London and practice at York and Bristol, where the free use of bad medicines will still be allowed. Um, as always, a very jolly view of Bristol there as a centre of both undertaking and bad medicines. The satirical pamphlet and Steele's play were produced in a period in which medicine was unregulated and also greatly debated by lay people. Medical advice was available in pamphlets and early newspapers, which were both increasing in popularity. Disputes and contradictions were published for people to read and develop their own opinions on. Now, Sable's relationship with medical practitioners extends to a Dr. Quibus, who believes, who, sorry, who he believes will condemn the use of nourishing supplements for the poor. This, of course, depends on the doctor's credibility. If the doctor's condemnation is believed by readers, the undertaker can rely on more business. Sable notes that the doctor has promised to write me a treatise against water gruel, a damned healthy slop, 
that has done me more injury than all of the faculty. The water gruel which, which Dr. Krebus was expected to condemn is a concoction of oats boiled in water, a sort of thin porridge that had been championed by advocates of health even during the plague of the mid-17th century. It was intended for the poor and was argued to have improved the chances of newborns surviving childbirth, which was ultimately not what the undertaker wanted. Greater regulation of medicine did not eliminate the accusations of quackery, and indeed the accusations that quackery and undertaking had allied purposes or a similar goal. This was rather boldly depicted in Rollinson's The Quack and the Undertaker, one of the images that comprises English Dance of Death, published in the early 1800s. Here the doctor, visibly similar to our original example, is labelled as quack, and the consequences of his quackery are evidenced by the skeleton riding with him. The quack doctor is therefore an agent of death, bringing him to different residences in the town on his visits, and the undertaker is the benefactor. Now, although no specific collaboration is mentioned, instead we see the undertaker and his wife emerging from the shadows bearing coffins, including a small child's coffin, indicating that none are safe from the quack or the undertaker. You can see that on the left side of the image there. Now, in 1743, in the play Bickerstaff's and Bury Dead, which is a delightful farce that imagines undertakers attempting to bury the living, who have contributed very little to society, uh, we find a group of undertakers who discuss the circumstances that have led them to bury the living. And they say, gentlemen, the doctors and we have been friends too long. They are as exorbitant in their fees with us as with their patients. Besides, they are so tedious of late in dispatching. They take a fortnight, sometimes a month, to kill a man. Here the friendship between the undertakers and doctors is given a monetary dimension, which makes it appear more of a transactional relationship than a, a friendly or a filial one. Indeed, not only do the doctors request a fee from the undertaker, but they desire to draw full payment from the dying, which means that they were less effective at serving the purposes of the undertakers. Sometimes the absence of the physician was as much of an inju injury as the unhelpful conduct. In a satirical letter published in the Morning Chronicle and London Advertiser in 1783, we find the lamentations of a London undertaker whose physician friend was out of town. The fictional undertaker complained of the lack of custom due to the physician's retirement to the countryside. Throughout his letter, this imagined undertaker reminds the physician that his actions are essential to the funeral business because natural causes simply couldn't end enough lives. He states, Your acquaintance, your old acquaintance, is actually starving. All tradesmen must live, and we cannot. Unless other people die, and nature unassisted, will never employ a hundredth part of our business. The undertaker's language continues, so he teases the continuing disputes of authority between physician and apothecaries, noticing that the inadequacies of the apothecary's actions in causing more death. The reader is prompted to ask whether the dishonesty of the physician, rather than the efficacy of the apothecary's cures, is the cause of their fatal legacy. The apothecary stand us in some stead, the undertaker begins. Those honest fellows, every now and then, throw us in an odd hecatomb of carcasses, 
but they can't go on with half the vigour as they did when aided by your efficacious prescriptions, which finished at a blow and were infallible metamuses to the realms of silence and tranquillity. As we draw toward the end, there is arguably no clearer representation of the perceived relationship between undertakers and doctors than the caricature three friends going on a visit. A comedic scene which features death, a doctor and an undertaker riding together through the countryside to the unseen home of their next victim. The undertaker and doctor are quite overtly linked by death who rides between them crowned as the King of Terrors, an image that's quite familiar throughout the 17th and also 18th century, death with a crown sort of in a triumphal pose. The presence of death is also a reminder that the visit to which the characters are riding is not one in which the Doctor's expected skills will prove successful. We might expect the Undertaker, for example, to be a friend of death, but it's contrary to what we would expect for the Doctor. Much as these three friends swept through the countryside, so the institutions that they represented gained a new hold on the social organisation of death. Dying that could be eased by medication or brought about by medical misadventure was and was organised by an ever-developing trade of undertaking. Whilst medicine and undertaking promised convenience, they did so through practices that were open to ridicule and questioning. The necessity of payment prompted some to question the motives of practitioners who benefited from death and might make questionable allegiances when the opportunity for payment ceased. And so, in the exaggerated scenes of 18th century fiction, these concerns inspired characters whose motives were laid bare and exposed to questioning and whose actions contributed to cautionary tales about trusting one's life with individuals whose skills and knowledge we didn't fully understand. In these scenarios, the dying, and sometimes even the living, are caught like Rollinson's sleeping figure, between the undertakers and the doctors, unaware of what these two parties might know or might be planning. Ultimately, the warning here is that the trust that we put in these individuals to provide us with convenience, to save us and to kind of reassure us, may be misplaced. Um, because some of the things they do and some of the practices they have are not fully understood by us. They are new and ever-changing, perhaps. They are also, for the most part, not as well regulated uh, as they should be. This is, of course, not to say that people didn't trust these organisations. And what we see amusingly throughout this period, particularly with the undertakers, is that the undertakers are often criticised and often condemned but their popularity grows because in reality, the things that people fear, the things that people talk about in satire uh, and fiction are not things which stop them from engaging in what they see as being a profitable and a beneficial um, activity. So with that, I bring my discussion of the relationship, the sometimes thorny relationship um, between medicine and undertaking to a close uh, and I thank you all for listening and I hope it was very interesting um, and thank you very much for listening. Uh, thanks very much that was uh, beautifully illustrated beautifully thought through much food for thought and again can I remind participants it's uh, please put questions or comments into the uh, Q and A.
And I suppose, you know, as I'm thinking through here, the resonances of where uh, conflicts of interest and challenge may be in terms of well-being. Uh, my question to you be was where you might see uh, the modern resonances. I mean, George Bernard Shaw and the Doctor's Dilemma catches some of it through the uh, blandishments of uh, private medicine. Um, and indeed, uh, you, you put your finger very much on the pulse when you say that, um, when there is a pulse, uh, that uh, we know little about the workings of undertakers. For example, in Dublin, although there appears to be a multiplicity of undertakers, in fact, many of them have been subsumed into a monopoly under uh, one company, which interestingly uh, provides sponsorship for an older person's advocacy group. Uh, you know, so it's interesting to watch resonances. So lessons for today that you can see it coming from this over cozy relationship. I think it is, it is really interesting when we think about the, the problems that we, we face today, particularly because we, you know, similarly here in, in England, we have quite recently, there was a lot of concern over the operation of the cooperative funeral group, where um, people expected that their local um, funeral director in the cooperative group would be keeping their relative's body on site. What they didn't realise was that the organisation for financial reasons was keeping lots of bodies in a sort of warehouse off-site, um, a very organised warehouse. But the it was interesting that when confronted by this this realisation, this truth, people were very shocked and people were very upset because, you know, in their minds, they expected a, a particular level of personal treatment from their, their funeral director. And that wasn't really met by the, the reality of, of how the organisation had chosen to deal with their their dead loved ones remains. It's also really interesting because when we think of, um, I can remember some recent cases with um, the trafficking of human bone, um, mm. instances where he, samples of human bone were taken from deceased individuals and then essentially sold on the black market. And people were, um, I think it happened, I think Alistair Cook, in fact, um, the journalist, mm. his, some of his bone was um, was alleged to have been taken from his dead body and then sort of sold on the black market. And instances like that, you know, they remind us that there is, there's an element of trust in leaving a dead body and the, the entirety of a dead body with a group of individuals who will then take care of it and process it, but in ways that we maybe don't understand. Um, and also with people who maybe we're not familiar with or we don't know about. So, it, it does have some interesting um, parallels today with the way in which you know, individuals place trust in those who look after bodies um, and have expectations of what should happen, or, you know, in their mind, what they see as being proper. Um, yeah, yeah. No, no, really important around rituals. And again, without trivialising it, a similar, uh, you know, a similar outcry around cremation of pets and whether the what was being returned was indeed the pet or some generic uh, ashes. Um, the the there's a qu question in and it's quite an interesting one around the iconography of the time, which obviously you're deeply invested in. Why are doctors represented with wigs and canes? Do you think there's any particular um, significance? So the, the representation of doctors with wigs and canes owes a lot to um, their sort of general status in society and the idea that, you know, your doctor is this individual who has his cane almost as a symbol of authority and status. 
has his wig quite similarly. Um, you know, wig is a very simple way of, of presenting with hair, maybe keeping the lice that would be in your actual hair away from um, the outside world. And it's it's interesting because the idea, the, the image of the, the periwig doctor with a cane is one that gets um, revisited lots and lots of different times in the 18th century. Probably the, the, the most impressive example is Hogarth's um, A Company of Undertakers, which amusingly is not an image of undertakers, it's an image of, of doctors and, and medical professionals and also some, some quack doctors as well, who are depicted, you know, with their holding their canes with their sort of wigged heads um, in a sort of faux heraldic, faux ceremonial way um, that kind of pokes fun at some of the, the apparent sincerity of the, their sort of organisation, whilst at the same time mocking some of the ways that they practice. So we have in the centre of this, um, it's quite an impressive sort of shield-shaped crest with 12 different un uh, physicians in it. And at the centre, we have them rather sagely considering the contents of a urine flask. So they're, they're looking at it, one of them's tasting the contents of a urine flask. But to, you know, to, to a quick glance, they all look very sort of seriously posed and they have that sort of air of authenticity about them. Um, yeah, what's interesting from, you know, uh, just ahead of, of the talk, I had a look at Medline, which obviously is our medical uh, database of, uh, and what's interesting, I could only find two papers when you put the word undertakers and doctors together. And one was an interesting one, which suggested almost a, a huge turn away from the relationship from Norway, where they were looking at patients who died at home and where, in fact, the undertakers were left with a big gap around documentation. So um, it, it certainly seems that the 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 the, the type of relationship has evolved into, into a very different way in, in modern times. I think there's a lot of, nowadays, there's a lot of sort of separation between those two things. And in some ways, the, the shift in, in, the, in the way in which the, the funeral trade presents itself now has aided that. So before we have a fairly unregulated funeral trade, now the, the funeral trade likes to present itself as being considerably more regulated. And I think as a result, it's kind of, it's sort of boxed itself into a corner. Um, I think also people, particularly when you have institutions such as hospitals, people can be very suspicious of what happens um, to the dead when they're not at close hand, you know, when they're not in a place where they can see them or sort of sense what's happening to them. Um, so it, it is interesting how there is that, that separateness between them now, because when, when you see historical examples, it does seem as if the two groups are quite closely together, or at least are presented as being quite closely together. Yeah, and interesting, our, our last seminar last, uh, two weeks ago from Shelby was around doctors in, in workhouses, South Dublin Union. And an interesting question, was there a different perception uh, at the time of physicians who worked in hospitals, given the institution's association with poverty, have you come across any instances of undertakers partnering with certain hospitals or workhouses? In my own time, I haven't encountered any, um, my sort of, my, my period of study, I haven't encountered any allegiances between the two. But I would note that there are examples where, particularly on the issue of um, anatomy and the idea of people dying and then falling into the care of the undertaker, um, and then falling victim to anatomists, the undertakers seem to form potentially one of those links between death and anatomy, where individuals may die um, and their body may be sort of, you know, 
snuck away by the undertaker and handed over to the anatomist. There's a really good fictional example, actually, of it's um, a little uh, narrative about, I think it's a surgeon who's dying and he brings the priest and the undertaker to his, his bedside and gets them to promise that they, that they will work together as priest and undertaker to prevent him from being handed over to the, the surgeons who will anatomize him because he knows the risk. He knows this sort of um, potential for collusion between um, those in the hospital who are studying the dead and the undertakers outside. Um, and that's one thing, I, that's sort of one avenue I didn't really pursue in today's talk, but it is, it is a very interesting one about how um, in a time when people are being anatomized, some of them are criminals, some of them are being stolen from the ground, how there are possibilities, at least perceptions, that undertakers may be performing a sort of vital link in that chain between the two. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting because in the uh, another, I'm just seeing if there's any other Q&A, the other question I have, you know, in a sense, it's very easy sometimes to decry backwards, um, you know, what we might see as primitive or our relationships for gain. But it may well be that we've lost something in translation here, which is around an ability to talk perhaps more openly around death and more openly about you know, how I want to be looked, my body wants to be looked after. Uh, so, you know, uh, certainly in Ireland, our medical practice is very elliptical. People tend to talk around the subject. And and at least at the time, um, there was a, one gets a sense of much more openness about talking about death. Hmm. I think there definitely was. I think people, certainly as I look back through time, um, the by the sort of late 17th century and into the early 18th century, people are more familiar with the, the idea of death around them. And whilst that might not um, lead them to become hardened to death, it does prompt them to consider how they will die, what they want to happen when they die, and also how to prepare for the, the coming of their death as well, which is something that I think over time people have become quite distanced from or quite detached from. Um, and it is interesting also how as an organisation, by changing over time from these sort of recognisable undertakers to funeral directors, um, you know, the nature of the work within the funeral trade has been sort of refigured and, and restyled so that when you look at the, the way that undertakers present themselves in the 18th century, they are doing so with imagery that does remind individuals of death. That's a sort of reminder of the realities of death in some cases. Whereas, you know, you look at funeral directors, promotional materials nowadays, there are lots of nice trees and some, some plants and maybe a bird. And it's all very euphemistic and it kind of it sort of hints that there might be something that you can never be quite sure. Yes, yes. No, it's it's uh, you get a sense of almost a, a glossing, a glossing over. And, uh, and now that being said, I still think there's a high premium probably in in, in Irish society. Um, interesting question coming in. In India, the undertakers usually faced uh, caste discrimination. Uh, was there anything similar for undertakers in 18th century England? Um there's no formal discrimination against undertakers, but we do find in the way that they're represented that there is this sense that the undertakers become polluted, if you like, by their exposure to the dead. There's a, a delightful um, description in one text where um, we're presented with an undertaker who, if I can quote, handles with dispassion the limbs of the deceased, the clay-cold limbs of the deceased, um, and we're given the sense that the undertaker is handling the dead body um, completely 
divorced from a sense that this was once someone who lived because of their exposure to death has essentially hardened them and, and altered them in some ways. And I think we see that in the fictional representations as well. We're confronted by lots of depictions of undertakers who have no limit in their description of the dead, almost because it's become second nature to them. They're not members of polite society anymore. Great. Well, listen, we've got to two or three minutes before the end, Dan. That was a fantastic uh, end to our this year's series. Um, and I think, uh, you know, we our participants have held on to the end. We've got some really good uh, comments, uh, further comment. Personally, interesting the problematized relationship between the doctors and undertakers of the ill and the undertaker, the subtle criminalization of undertakers in 18th century England. So much food for thought. Uh, great. Big thank you to Shelby and Courtney. Thank you for those who have participated today. And uh, to, we'll be working now on seminars for next year. And Dan, you've set a high standard there. Thank you very much. You All very the best. Much. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.